Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 10 to 12 this morning as we finish off looking at the Beatitudes at the start of the Sermon on the Mount before we start digging into the rest of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray before we dig into God's Word together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we know that Your Word is living. We know that it is active. Father, we don't read Your Word like any other book. We know that through the power of the Spirit, as we read Your Word, it, it reads us and it convicts us and it teaches us and it exhorts us. Father, that's what we ask for this morning. That's what we ask for any time we're in Your Word, that, that Your Spirit would do a work in our hearts, that we would learn more about Your ways, we would understand what You've called us to be and the life that You have called us to in Christ. Father, help us to hear this morning, and through hearing, glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew 5, verses 10 to 11, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this morning, as we look at verse 10 to 12, we have two Beatitudes that are before us in these verses that communicate something that's very similar. And sometimes, in fact, these verses are actually taken to be just one Beatitude, with verse 10 portraying kind of an overarching general thought, and then verse 11 and 12 elaborating on what Jesus says in verse 10. And I think it's reasonable, I think it's ultimately inconsequential, however you view this, whether it's one or two Beatitudes. But once again, what we see in verse 10, as in all Beatitudes, Jesus, he starts his statement with an outcome. And the outcome that he declares in each Beatitude is blessing. He says, this is the outcome, that you will be blessed. And then he follows up the declaration of blessing by telling us who it is that's blessed and why they are blessed. And he says, the ones who are blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And the reason that they are blessed is because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 11, he elaborates further and he declares again this outcome of blessing. And then he follows it up by, again, who is blessed. And a difference that you'll see between verse 10 and verse 11 that's quite notable is that Jesus personalizes his statement in verse 10 or in verse 11, which he does not do in verse 10. Instead of speaking generally as he does in verse 10, he speaks specifically. He says, you are blessed when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And following this second pronouncement of persecution, he instructs us how we are to respond when this happens in our life, when we are reviled and persecuted by others. He says, rejoice and be glad. That's easy, right? We love that. 
When someone hates you, when someone comes against you, when someone persecutes you, rejoice and be glad. That is not an easy thing for a human heart to do. But thankfully, Jesus lays before us a reason to grasp hold of, to help us respond with joy and with gladness when we are reviled. He says, the ESV uses this little word for to introduce two arguments that he gives for why we should be glad and we should rejoice. And the first thing he says, he says, rejoice and be glad for our reward is great in heaven. So when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, your reward is great in heaven. And so be glad. And then second, he says, for so the, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these are the reasons that Jesus gives for why we should be glad under persecution. And when he says this second statement about, for so the, they persecuted the prophets who were before you, this would have been an incredible encouragement to the Jews who were sitting there, who were listening to the Sermon on the Mount, because they would have readily understood that Jesus was referring to the prophets who walked righteously before God, who were sent to the nation of Israel and other nations to call people out of their sin into repentance. And these men were often hated and suffered at the hands of their brethren when they were doing this work for God. But these men were now viewed by the Jews as great men. And so we were thinking of men like Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And so this would have been a great encouragement to the Jews. They would have understood that Jesus was pointing them to the fact that when they suffered for righteousness, they joined the ranks of such distinguished men in their history. And in our context, when you and I read this statement, we understand that our response would be similar to that of the Jews who were originally hearing this teaching from Jesus. We understand this to mean that we are in good company as well when we are persecuted because we join not only the long line of prophets, as Jesus says, but also the saints all throughout church history who have experienced persecution before us. As Hebrews 11 says, there is a cloud of witnesses. And it goes on to explain some of the persecution that these witnesses faced in their time on earth. You know, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers in the second century, he wrote about persecution of the saints in his book, Apologeticus, and he said the following. He said, we multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is seed. And this is often translated, you've maybe heard it this way, into a more poetic translation. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian was saying that as you come against us, as you persecute us, as you kill us, this is the foundation that the church continues to be built on. We continue to multiply. This is how Jesus has set his church up to work. And so in this beatitude, Jesus is telling his people, persecution is a part of the Christian experience. But though you face difficult situations, though you face persecution and reviling, there are blessings that are going to come from these difficult things that you face. And we know throughout the history of the church that persecution has been significant. But for us this morning, maybe it's a little bit difficult to understand. In our current reality, there is persecution in our world, but it doesn't necessarily touch us, at least not regularly. But this is still a relevant message for Jesus' church. 
Though for many of us at times, persecution feels far removed maybe from our Christian experience, and that is significantly due to the country that we live in, significantly due to the time in history that the Lord has placed us, what we must keep in mind is that persecution is increasing, and it is certainly prevalent around the world, and it is something that every Christian will experience to different degrees. Having said that, as followers of Christ, we do not look for persecution. Right? We do not have some sort of martyr complex where we go out looking for it specifically. But at the same time, if we rarely or never experience it, let it be because of the favor of God upon us and not because we are not living as we should. According to Open Doors, which is a Christian organization who has the purpose of praying for and supporting and making known stories of Christian persecution around the world. In just the last year, 340 million Christians are now living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Last year, 4,761 Christians were killed in attacks because they were specifically targeted for their faith. That was a 60% increase over the previous year, and 9 out of 10 of those killings occurred in Africa. 4,488 Christian buildings and churches were attacked and destroyed in the last year. 4,277 believers were detained for their faith without trial and sentenced and imprisoned. Open Doors lists the most difficult countries where it is to live as a Christian. And the worst country in the world is North Korea, followed by Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. In North Korea, where Christians face the worst persecution, there's about 400,000 Christians amongst a population of 25 million people. And in North Korea, being discovered as a Christian often results in immediate execution. But if execution does not come swiftly, then Christians are taken to labor camps as political criminals, along with every single member of their family. It's estimated that right now there's about 50 to 70,000 Christians in labor camps in North Korea. The government employs secret police to carry out raids with the intention of trying to discover and identify Christians. Children are taught and encouraged to report any sign of faith that may be present in their families. Depending on what kind of what country you live in as a believer, the persecution can look different. If you're a believer in Afghanistan, you often face the most intense persecution from your own family because of the Islamic faith. The family is brought to shame by a member of the family that recants belief in Allah. A new Christian in Afghanistan is often disowned, or they may even be thrown into a psychiatric hospital because it is considered insanity to renounce Islam. In the worst cases, an individual will be killed in order to save their family's honor. In Somalia, another country where Islam has a significant hold, being a Muslim is considered a crucial part of your identity. And so individuals face harassment from their family, their clan, and their community, and possibly death if they renounce and become Christians. And women are often mistreated horribly and forced to marry if they are found to be Christians. In India, where Hinduism is the majority religion, Christians may be isolated and boycotted by their community, making it very difficult for them to earn money. So these are just 
A few examples of modern day persecution in some of the countries that our brothers and sisters live in. And if you want an idea of what our brothers and sisters all over the world are experiencing, I encourage you to go to the Open Doors website and download the World Watch List that they, receive, that they release every single year. They release every year the top 50 worst countries for Christians to live in. And this report will give you a very clear understanding of what followers of Christ are dealing with in the most difficult places in the world. In Canada, persecution looks a little bit different. Persecution is less extreme. However, it doesn't mean that it is non-existent. We know, and maybe you've heard, the news has been quietly covering stories that in the last few months, more than 50 churches have been burned in Canada. And these have been done in a misguided protest over the unmarked graves found at residential schools. And that is not to say that the discovery of these graves, it is a grievous black mark on the history of some denominations in the Christian faith. It is a grievous black mark on Canada's history, and it is an indication of the type of systemic racism that has marked Canada's history. But burning churches is not the response. Our Lord and our Savior and our faith faces more anger more hatred and more disrespect in our country than any other faith including from our own government christian ideals are increasingly targeted as the antithesis to popular culture and viewed as outdated and medieval thinking snide remarks and memes about christians are regularly shared amongst non-christians on social media just a couple of weeks ago a friend of kate's and mine posted an attack on pastors and Kate wrote her and was like, you do realize my husband's a pastor. And her response was, yes, but you and Chad are the exception. To which I say, no, no, we are part of the majority. There is an unfortunate exception. But that is what popular culture lays hold of. Canadian laws are increasingly being passed, which are on a collision course with a freedom of conscience and Christian morals and ethics. And when a country starts arresting its pastors, when it starts barricading its churches and not treating the church as essential, but like any other institution, such as a restaurant or retail, it is a deeply concerning trend. And while what I mention here is mostly institutional levels of persecution there is also the reality of the individual persecution and experiences that followers of christ face whether it be seemingly minimal as snide comments or outright hostility and these realities the apostle john reminds us in first john three thirteen: do not be surprised do not be surprised brothers when the world hates you but the question becomes why why does the world hate you why does the world persecute followers of Christ? And there's so many conditions that account for this. The depravity of the human heart, the inability for fallen humans to reconcile with the things of God. But I want to point out one significant one, one significant motivation in the persecution of Christians. Jesus tells us what leads to persecution in verse 10 here in the Beatitudes. He says, you are blessed when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And so it is righteousness that brings persecution. 
And then in verse 11, he says, you who are persecuted, you're persecuted on my account. And so Jesus is saying, being like me, living as you are called, as righteous people in Christ is what's going to bring persecution in you. Now, to that point, it is very important for us to protect ourselves from some sort of false persecution mindset that writes all hostility towards us off as being because we're so like Jesus. We can't have that kind of mindset, right? Anyone comes against us, we can't just say, well, I'm just so like Christ, right? We dare not use it as an excuse to be ignorant. We dare not use it as an excuse to be arrogant or quarrelsome and then blame someone else because we face opposition as though it's just my cross to bear. Maybe it is our cross to bear at times, and maybe in some situations, we're just being fleshly, fallen human beings. This is why Jesus does not simply say, blessed are those who are persecuted. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we can't use this as an excuse for hostility toward our demeanor when our demeanor does not mimic Christ-likeness. Peter warns of this kind of false persecution mindset in his letter. In 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16, he says to the believers, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so why does the world persecute the righteous? Well, Jesus begins to unpack why for us in John. In John 15, 18 to 20, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that I... Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so the world hates you because you are not of the world. And that's a big part of it. But what is the specific thing that the world hates? And if we do a quick survey of the Beatitudes of a character of a Christian, it doesn't seem like it's something the world should hate. Right? If we go through all the Beatitudes, it says, be poor in spirit. Mourn. Mourn your imperfections. Walk in meekness amongst others. Hunger for righteousness. Be pure in heart. Be merciful. Make peace with other people. These things sound good. Why does the world hate these things? And I think we'll clearly see it if we look at what happened with Adam and Eve. And then after, after the fall, and then examples of persecution that we can see all throughout Scripture. In Genesis 3, 12 to 13, it tells us what happened after the fall with Adam and Eve. They were both trying to argue and place blame on someone else. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's her fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the serpent's fault. 
Look at Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. How about Job? Job was persecuted by Satan himself and at the hands of his friends who harassed him continually of being wicked, though he was a righteous man. Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was thrown in jail by Potiphar's wife. David, he was pursued by Saul, threatening his life on several occasions, trying to kill him. Jeremiah declared the word of God to the kings of Judah. He was rejected. He was publicly humiliated. Jeremiah 20, verse 1 to 2, it says, Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who is chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. And how about John the Baptist? But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. In all of these examples, the individuals being persecuted were walking in righteousness. And Jesus, I think, alludes to the reason why they are persecuted in Luke chapter 16. He's talking to the Pharisees, and this is what he says to them. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And I think Luke 16 gives us a clue as to why righteousness is persecuted. Righteousness will be persecuted by the world because of the need for men and women to justify themselves. We see it in every single example that we just looked at. In the fall, Adam tried to justify his actions by blaming Eve. Eve tried to justify her actions by blaming the serpent. In every single example of persecution, Cain, who was offering, whose offering was not acceptable to the Lord, felt he needed to justify himself by killing Abel. Satan tried to justify himself by showing Job's devotion to the Lord was only there because he was blessed by the Lord. Job's friends tried to justify their way of thinking, their worldview by harassing Job, that he must have done something wrong, some awful thing for these, all of these things to happen to him. Joseph's brothers tried to justify themselves because they were felt second class next to Joseph by getting rid of their father's favorite son. Potiphar's wife tried to justify herself. How could Joseph dare deny her by blaming her actions on Joseph? Saul tried to justify himself after falling out of favor with the Lord by persecuting David, the Lord's replacement. The kings and nation of Israel tried to justify their way of living by persecuting Jeremiah and all of the prophets trying to silence their message 
And Herod tried to justify himself by imprisoning the man who would dare call out his sin. The human heart has a need to be justified since it is no longer right before God, since it knows that it is condemned. The heart hates being shown that it is not right, that something is wrong. And when an individual walks in righteousness before God, those who see it feel deep in their souls the need to rationalize and the need to justify themselves and their way of life to try to find peace before their own conscience or before their group or before their tribe that they identify with. And it often comes in the form of crushing that which exposes its brokenness. This is why Paul says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems, John Stott says. You cannot serve two masters, and you will need to justify the one that you are serving by trying to stamp out the one that exposes your wickedness. This is why righteousness will be persecuted. And so how do we then, how do we respond? Jesus says, respond by rejoicing and being glad when you are hated. John Stott says this. He says, how did Jesus expect his disciples to react under persecution? Rejoice and be glad. We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, nor sulk like a child, nor lick our wound in self-pity like a dog, nor just grin and bear it like a stoic. Still less pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should and even leap for joy. Where does John Stott get this idea of leaping for joy, and he takes it from Luke chapter 6, where Jesus teaches this beatitude again in a slightly different way. He says, rejoice in that day that you are persecuted, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. We are to respond by leaping for joy. When's the last time you leaped for joy when someone hated you? You know, you jump up and click your heels together. This is great. I'm so excited about it, right? We don't often respond that way, but why? Why are we able to respond that way? Why does Jesus say that we can have joy? Why does he say that, that we can rejoice and be glad? Because the kingdom of heaven is ours. Because though people may persecute you here, though people may revile you here, this is not your home. You are just stopping through on a journey to the kingdom of heaven that is yours. You know what's interesting is that the Beatitudes, they start with the kingdom of heaven and they end with the kingdom of heaven. And I think Jesus is trying to remind us this is our most important membership. This is the most important thing. It begins and ends with the kingdom of heaven. We have a reward in heaven waiting for us. And there is reason to believe 
that that reward increases as persecution is faced. Again, that is not to say we go out and get persecution to try and collect more crowns before Jesus. That's not the right heart. But as we stand fast, as we persevere, we lay up treasures in heaven. So how do we prepare our hearts for persecution? I want to give you five things as we close. First, we prepare our hearts for persecution by studying the scriptures that teach about the nature of persecution in the Christian life. We study those scriptures that teach us that it is normal, that it is to be expected, and that it is temporary so that we may not be caught off guard when it comes. Second, we study the the scriptures that teach of the rewards that await the Christian who perseveres. You know, one of the misunderstandings about the Christian life sometimes is that it's not wrong to work for the reward that will come. That's what Paul says, right? Paul's excited for the reward that's going to come. He stands fast because he knows what he's going to receive when he gets to heaven. It's not wrong to have that kind of a mindset. Jesus just says, work for the right reward. That's what Jesus says. Third, read inspiring stories. Read biographies of the saints that have come before you, that have persevered under persecution. Be inspired by these men and women who have faced incredible things and stood firm for Jesus Christ. Let it inspire your own heart. Read Hebrews 11. And the vast witnesses whom we will one day join, many of whom faced opposition. And the last thing that you can do is you can pray for the persecuted church. You can pray for your brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution daily. Open Doors even has an app that you can download that will give you prayer points every single day. You can use that if you want. Hebrews 13.3, it says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. We are to remember our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution every single day. Remember them as though we are there with them, as though we are going through what they are going through. That will make you hungry to pray for these people. Let's pray right now together. Heavenly Father, we know that as we follow Christ, persecution will come. We know that it is a part of the life that you have called us to in him. We thank you that it has been exemplified by such a long host of people before us who have persevered, who have stood fast in the faith that we can look to and be encouraged by. Father, we thank you that our Savior, Jesus Christ, himself suffered and died on a cross, was persecuted, was hated. Lord, we look to him as our great example. Father, we don't walk around with some sort of mindset looking for persecution, but as we stand strong in the faith, 
as we walk in righteousness, we know that it will come. So let us not be caught off guard. Father, let us not shrink back in fear at the prospect of persecution, but stand strong on your word, knowing that your word is life. Father, we give you praise for the beautiful promises that come. And, and Lord, I, I pray that for those who experience persecution and brothers and sisters around the world, these things would deeply encourage them the way that they encouraged Paul, knowing there is a kingdom awaiting us in heaven, that there is a great inheritance that we will receive, that there are rewards that we will enjoy when we go to be with you in eternity. Father, help us to have a kingdom mindset. Help us to have our eyes fixed on heaven. When we fix them on the things of the earth, we are unwilling to step into difficulty. But when we raise our eyes to what you have promised, it helps us to walk out the difficulties here. Father, encourage us through your word. Exhort us where we need to be exhorted. And help us to stand strong for Christ. We give you praise, Lord, for who you are and all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.